before we dive into our study of James, I want to talk a little bit about authenticity. That is a big buzzword in our culture today. You often hear people talk about authenticity and being authentic. It's not uncommon to hear people say things like, um, I'm just trying to be true to myself, or I'm following the dream to be me, or my whole goal in life is just to be real. Now, on the one hand, this, this is really good because this means as a society, we actually do value the individual. The individual matters. Uh, we actually believe in the right to, to pursue your aspirations without undue restraint and that we value the search for truth. All those things are good. On the other hand, if we're going to be honest about this and we listen to some of this authenticity speech out there, a lot of times it seems to be a nice smoke screen for a lot of self-centered, self-indulgent choices in life. In his book, The Authenticity Hoax, uh, author and journalist Andrew Potter writes this, the quest for authenticity is a quest to restore our lost humanity. Where once we did it through actual religious rituals, prayer and communion with God, now we make do with things such as Oprah's Book Club. Now, I don't know if this was written in about 10 years ago, so I don't even know if that still exists, but in, in 2005, it was a big thing, um, which offers a thoroughly modern form of spirituality that is a fluid mix of pop psychoanalysis, self-help, sentimentality, emotionalism, nostalgia, and yuppie consumerism. He goes on to write, more worrisome is the way our pursuit of the authentic ideal has become one of the most powerful causes of inauthenticity in the modern world. Now, Potter goes on to write that the, what he calls the authenticity project that has simply consumed Western society for the last century is really a hoax. He writes in his book that the term authenticity itself comes from the world of art history referring to whether or not a piece of art or a painting or a sculpture was the creation of its owner and therefore worthy of the admiration or the price that was paid for it. Now, authenticity as a term were being applied to people does not mean you being you. A statement like that makes no sense at all when speaking about authenticity. If you're authentic, it means that you reflect the intentions of the painter or the designer or the sculptor, the creator. In other words, does the art, or in the case we use in our culture, the individual, actually reflect the intentions of the one who created it? If it does, if you do, then you are authentic. Now, the concern that Potter alluded to in that quote when he said, our pursuit of authenticity is the most powerful cause of inauthenticity in the modern world, he writes, is because everyone misunderstands what authenticity actually is. Instead, he says, individuals are so concerned about being real, genuine, or truly themselves that none of them are taking the time to ask the question, what exactly is a real, genuine, or true human being in the first place? Now, Potter is not writing from a Christian perspective. To my knowledge, he is not a Christian, so the conclusions he comes to are very different than the ones you or I might come to, but at least his analysis of the problem is right on the money. Now, you might be saying, well, that's great. But what does all this talk about authenticity have to do with the final verses of the first chapter of the New Testament book of James? Naturally, James doesn't use the word authenticity. But the concept 
is the driving engine behind these final six verses of chapter one because they are about reflecting the intentions of our Creator, actually being the thing that we were created to be. Or to use the language of verse 18 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago that says, of His will, speaking of God, that He brought us forth by His Word that we should give evidence of His creation. In other words, that we are authentically His. Now, in our ongoing study of the book of James, we, we kind of moved into a different section beginning in verse 19 last week. It was the third mark, really, of the three marks of a genuine Christian. Now, you recall the first mark of a Christian would be that they respond to the trials of life with the wisdom of God to see all of life's circumstances through a particularly Godward lens. The second was that Christians endure the temptations in life with a kind of steadfastness through the good gifts that they receive from God. And then third and finally, Christians respond to the truth of God's Word with an appropriate desire to obey it as they receive the implanted Word. Now, here's the amazing thing. To make sure, James wanted to make sure that people did not understand Christianity as simply another moral system or religious involvement that, that, that kind of changes you, he wanted to make sure that from beginning to end, even the ability to produce true marks of being a genuine Christian is itself a gift, a gift of grace. He wanted to make sure that even though he was talking about what marks a true Christian, he wanted these early Christians and us to recognize even being able to bear those marks itself is a gift from God to us. So notice regarding the first mark, the ability to see life through a Godward lens, even our sufferings, he says, is a gift of wisdom in verse 5, that you receive this wisdom from God. Regarding the second mark, talking about being able to endure the temptations of life with a steadfastness, we're able to do it because we receive from God all those good gifts He gives to us in verse 17. Being able to even hear the Word is a gift given from God as we receive the Word as He talked about in verse 21. So in this way, friends, Christianity is entirely different from every other religious system out there or moral system of reform because it isn't us recognizing our situation and then changing us by our own merit. It is us recognizing our need and then receiving everything we need from God to meet the need. And James lays this all out there in the very first chapter. Yet, there is always and, and also, a radical change that comes along with this receiving from God. Christianity is not a passive thing where we just receive and it has no, no demands of us. There is always a radical change that is both individual and corporate as a people of God. And that change is moral, that change is social, that change is psychological, that change is relational, that change is economic, that change is intellectual, and that change is practical. This is James' whole point of this first chapter, and really, this is James' whole point in the entire book. Now, Augustine, he was one of the earlier church fathers, uh, 3rd century, 4th century A.D., he put it this way, grant what thou commandest and then command what thou will. Let me read it again in his, the way he said it, and then I'll rephrase it in a way that makes more sense to us. He wrote, grant what thou commandest, and then command what thou will. And for more modern ears, it goes like this. 
God gives to us what He commands from us. God gives to us what He commands from us. Everything He demands and commands from me, He is sure to give me. Everything He commands and demands of you, He is sure to give to you as well. So, verses 22 to 27 is the final kind of capstone of all these points of chapter 1 that then lays the foundation for everything He's going to say in chapters 2 through 5. Verses 22 to 25, the first section we're looking at, is kind of the the second part of his encouragement and admonition to receive the Word and, equally important, apply the Word. And then verses 26 to 27, James is going to summarize and kind of headline feature what the rest of the book's about and how we reflect the true marks of our Creator and therefore show ourselves to be authentically of God. And so, for you note-takers who like to divide it up nicely, it's going to look like this. Verses 22 to 25, receiving the Word by living the Word, and then verses 26 to 27, reflecting the Lord by imitating the Lord. I grant you, it's not the most smoothest way to divide it, but, but that's what it is. So, let's look at it one at a time. Uh, verses 22 to 25, like a, like a good speaker, like a good writer, like a good pastor, James opens up by presenting us with a choice. You notice that? Verse 22 is the first choice. You can either deceive yourself, or verse 25, you can bless yourself. Notice those words, bookends those three verses. There's those who deceive themselves and those who bless themselves. We want to ask that question seriously. Now, you might think, well, who would want to deceive themselves? But if you're honest and your eyes are open, you look around the world, you see a lot of that going on. And so, James asks his people, you want to be deceiving yourself? You want to be blessing yourself? In other words, you want to hear the Word of God, and that's great, but you want to apply the Word of God It's great to hear it. That's what we talked about last week, verses 19 to 21. But that's only the first part of a fruitful use of God's Word. Hearing it alone will do you nothing. It's got to transform you. You've got to engage it. It's got to change your life. You've got to interact with it. When you think about it, just hearing it, just hearing it alone can actually lead us to a form of kind of spiritual pride, right? Hey, I I did my Bible reading today. Did you? You know, I, I've been faithful to read my Bible every morning this week. How about you? As a matter of fact, I even memorize some of what it said. I even know some of the Greek words behind the original, right? And, and James would say, hey, well done, great, but are you engaging with what you are reading? Is it changing your affections? Is it actually making you love Christ more, more than the benefits of Christ? Do you find that your relationships are becoming stronger, they're becoming better? Do you find that your imagination is becoming more in alignment with His? Do you find that your taste for the things of this world is is more and more sour and your taste for the things of God are more and more sweet? That's fine that you're hearing it, but is it actually changing you and engaging you in a way that's transforming you to be more like Jesus? James says the person that does that That's the person that's naturally blessed. If we are just on the receiving end of Scripture, but not making it a sincere practice to engage it, if we are just soaking it in, but not letting it do business in our souls, we are in danger, according to James, of deceiving ourselves. 
If we go and hear sermon after sermon and attend Bible study after Bible study, uh, small group after small group, community group and church service, yet there's no substantial Christ-like change because we're not taking it like a mirror and looking at it and seeing where our flaws are and being corrected by it, then we're deceiving ourselves, what James says. Friends, we can never mistake quantity of biblical information for quality of Christ-like transformation. Do not mistake quantity for quality when it comes to your walk with God. And it's easy to do in a culture where it's almost an embarrassment of riches, all the kinds of things we have at our disposal. Chances are, not only do you all have at least one copy of Scripture, maybe ten on your iPhone, you probably have different translations of Scripture. Do you realize how rich we are to have that. Godliness does not come by osmosis, right? Godliness does not come by mere exposure. James is saying godliness comes by the deliberate, intentional application of what we're being exposed to. And it's not about having a mountain load of information and going to all these things, but just letting God's Word bit by bit transform us. Several months ago, I was talking with a buddy of mine and he works at a Christian nonprofit. Uh, and, and as is the custom at these kinds of companies, at staff meetings, they'll do devotionals before they get into the meeting. And they assign different people on staff to, to lead the staff devotional. So his coworker was assigned, uh, they were going through the book of First Thessalonians. So the coworker, or excuse me, the coworker chose a passage from First Thessalonians. So he shared a devotional from it. It was great. Well, six months later or so, they asked the same coworker to share again. And so they showed up for staff meeting. And he shared the exact same scripture verse. And my friend was a little bit embarrassed for him. So after the staff meeting, he took him aside and he says, you know, um, Phil, I don't know if you remember this, but that's the same exact verse you shared with us six months ago. Because my friend was assuming, hey, are you reading anything else? And what's going on here? And what his coworker said blew him away. Is he, I know. I've been having that one verse milling about my mind for the last six months, and I'm amazed at the dozens of ways it's been rearranging the way I think about life, my, my, my walk with God, and reality. For six months, this, my friend's coworker had been thinking about this one particular passage in 1 Thessalonians for six months, and my friend, to his embarrassment, didn't even realize he picked up it was the same verse, but didn't realize that his coworker had an entirely different application and a way to think about that passage related to his life. Because for six months, this one verse, he had been coming at it from every angle possible, thinking about how his life conformed to it or didn't, what needed to change or where he was doing, what promises it had, what assurances, what guidance it gave him, for six months. Friends, wrestling with one Scripture verse will do more to transform your soul than reading an entire chapter of Scripture merely to move the bookmark. Let me say that again. One passage of Scripture wrestling with your soul will do more to transform you than an entire chapter of Scripture if you're reading it merely to move the bookmark. It is not the quantity that we are exposed to, but the quality by which we're engaged with it is what James is saying. 
This is his whole point in verses 23 to 24. He wants to highlight to hear the word but not actually be transformed by it, whether it's one verse or a hundred verses. I'm not making the case that you should only have one verse, right? I'd rather you do 101 verses, but do them well. James's point is that for someone to have exposure to God's word and not be transformed by it is crazy. That's what he says in verse 23, 24. Let me read it to you. If anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, this is what he's like. He's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, verse 24. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like. How many people in this room look at their reflection, walk away, and forget what they look like? Don't raise your hand. Okay, we'll talk later, brother. (laughs) The point is, that's absurd. Nobody does that. And James is saying it is equally absurd for a man or woman to look at their reflection and forget what they look like than for a man or woman to hear the Word of God and just walk away and not think that they're going to have to apply it to their lives. That's James's point. It's absurd to hear the word and think by virtue of the fact because you heard, you audibly heard Rick's voice bounce off your eardrums, you're going to be different. James is saying that's not how this works. It works by someone who's intently engaging the word of God and being transformed by it. But he even says something more radical than that. Look at verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, I'm going to come back to that phrase, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, who acts he will be blessed in his doing. What a, what a counter-cultural, odd phrase, this phrase he writes, the law of liberty. If that doesn't sound odd to you, you've, you've probably been reading your Bible more, and you've forgotten how radically weird the Bible can be. It's like saying jumbo shrimp, Right? or or pretty ugly. Um, The law of liberty is radically contradictory in terms. James is saying there is a law that brings freedom. There is a law that brings liberty to us. This does not compute. Friends, in our culture, when we hear freedom, when we're thinking about freedom, we're not thinking about law or restraints, are we? We don't. In our culture, the culture we live, the time we live, when we talk about freedom, we hear and believe it's freedom from constraints, right? It is the freedom to be me, the freedom to pursue my options, the freedom to pursue my dreams, the freedom to do whatever I want. Don't hold me back. No restraints on me. The sky's the limit. That's our understanding of freedom. We don't understand freedom, by the way, the way Western society historically understood freedom, which was the freedom to pursue that which is good, beautiful, and true. We understand freedom now as the freedom from all restraints. And that's creating a very different culture for us. And by the way, most of you are Christians. You need to understand this is why you are becoming more and more unpopular in our culture. Because in a culture that views freedom, if you're into philosophy, it's called absolute negative freedom. If, you, if we are in a culture that believes freedom means no restraints, the absence of any restraints, 
anything that imposes a restraint or challenges you is enemy number one. And guess what? This is why Christianity is becoming more and more unpopular, because Christianity is at odds with this current view of freedom. We live in a culture, maybe even within the church culture, we think freedom means no one tells me what to do. But let's do a thought experiment with me for a moment. Let's think about what kind of world would it be like if freedom simply meant there's no restraints put on you and you can do whatever you want? What would, what would that world look like? Number one, it would look like a, a world that was experiencing increasing loss of community, right? Because if, if the individual's pursuit of whatever they wish is the highest maximum, then you're not, that's, that's antithetical to community because community requires that people, individuals, exercise self-sacrifice. Individuals will compromise their desires for the good of others. There's a, it's more than the individual. There is a well-being of others to be considered. If, if the word freedom means the absence of all restraints, then uh, the, that world would look like the loss of a lot of strong marriages for the same reason. If, if, if a world of freedom means I get to do anything I want and I go into marriage thinking you're going to fulfill me in pursuing my dreams, my potential, all what I want, and guess what? Both couples are thinking that. Guess what's going to happen? Yeah. You see, freedom thinking no one tells me what to do is not going to bode well for marriages in that world. And then thirdly, if freedom meant there's just no restrictions, we all do what we all want, that's going to be a world where there's going to be an increasingly loss of meaning in life. Imagine if the world is populated, billions of people living to produce their own freedom, to achieve their own ends, there's no objective meaning. There's nothing as a society, as a race, we are striving for, pursuing. There's no grand point. There's no grand purpose. It's all individual self-satisfaction. Then there's no ultimate meaning that we're all striving for. It's all billions of individuals with their own meanings and freedoms in life. And what that means is when you or I die, anything you hope for, anything you strove for, sought to achieve, anything that had meaning dies with you because any sense of meaning it had, you had to create it and invest it in that thing. That's what the world would be like if freedom meant no restraints and you get to do whatever you want. But you see, James and what Scripture is saying is that's not what freedom is. Freedom isn't the absence of restrictions. Instead, freedom, true freedom, is finding the right liberating restrictions. So let me illustrate it. If if you want to be a phenomenal musician, you will restrict your freedoms and practice for hours and hours so you can gain the freedom of creative expression. If you want to be an Olympic athlete, you will restrict your freedoms and and not eat whatever you want, and you will train yourself so you can gain the freedom of amazing physical prowess and performance. If if you want a a, a wonderful uh, marriage, you will restrict your freedom to date anyone of the opposite sex you choose and to endlessly socialize to gain the freedom of intimacy and committed love. If you want to have peace and flourish as an individual, you will restrict your freedom of self-centeredness and gain the freedom of a Christ-centered life. 
By the way, this is exactly what Jesus meant in John chapter 8, verse 32, when he said, when you find the truth and the truth will set you free. This is exactly what Jesus had in mind. Friends, the, the ultimate bondage you'll ever know is rebelling against the God who made you. It may seem like freedom now, but it is the ultimate bondage to be in rebellion against the God who made you. That was what Jesus was getting at. You see, in John 8, when Jesus was talking to these Jews, who, who Jesus was saying, in effect, look, your, your dictator, your despot master, your oppressive master is not Caesar. If that's what you think it is, you're wrong. It's shameful, self-centeredness, and evil and enslaving devotion to the created things at the expense of worshiping your Creator. And when you find the truth of this, it will set you free. That's what Jesus was getting at. Free to pursue that which is right, beautiful, and good. That's the freedom that Scripture talks about. That's the freedom, counterintuitively, once we think about it, we go, yes, that's why I understand that. But that is not the freedom that is in our cultural air. But James says, the one who looks into the law of liberty and continues to do what it says will be blessed. That's what it means to receive the Word of God. And then in characteristic manner, James jumps into a topic that seems completely unrelated in verses 26 to 27, but, but in reality, it's actually a nice synopsis of everything James has been talking about and preparing us for everything that's coming later. You see, you can tell, that's what I love about the Bible, it is such a real book. When you read this, on first glance, you kind of go, what in the world? James is jumping topic all over the place. In reality, this is a pastor and a people who know each other really well, right? So if you're married, you know this. You start a conversation halfway through the dialogue with your spouse, right? And, and, and usually, if you're a good spouse, you, you know where your wife, your wife or husband's talking about, and you can join the conversations because you have this relationship, right? If you're smiling, that's working. If you're shaking your head, premarital counseling, we can do that. Um, James and his people know each other, so he can make a lot of leaps and jumps, and they're following him. The problem 2,000 years later, not quite so easy, but there is an amazing coherence to what James is actually saying here. James is talking about being authentically authentic, reflecting the marks of our Creator in these two final verses that capstone everything He's been saying and preparing us for everything that's coming. So look at those two verses. James mentions three things. Number one, controlling our tongue. Number two, visiting orphans and widows. Number three, keeping oneself unstained from the world. Now, the first thing to state is that James is not giving here in these two verses a litmus test of everything that defines what true religion is about, okay? Now, I know we think that's what he's saying because he says this is what true religion is, and then he says these things. We know that simply because the rest of the New Testament and all the Old Testament says so much more about what true spirituality, spirituality is about. 
So James is not contradicting the rest of Scripture. So he can't be saying, if you just do these three things, you're good, you don't have to do anything else, right? Secondly, to think that misunderstands why James is writing these two verses. Now track with me for a second. As we've been coming to the last, the end of chapter 1, James has been getting progressively and more specific about what it means to receive and do the Word of God. So in verse 1, um, accept the, excuse me, verse 21, accept the Word becomes do the Word in verse 22, which then becomes persevere in the Word in verse 25, or the law of liberty, the Word of God. So accept it, do it, persevere in it. So James has been progressively been getting more specific about what it means to listen and obey. Verse 26 and 27 culminates this progress where James talks about three significant ways that we reflect the character of our Creator that's revealed in His law and thus shows ourselves to be authentically His. See, see what I'm saying? So, he's not saying these three are all you got to do. He's, he's using these great broad principles to illustrate these are characteristic marks of what our Father's like, and they should mark you too. The first one, really, I want you to, the sequence, notice the sequence of what James talks about is bound, in a sense, by the three central features of how God acts towards His people as well. There's, there's a sense to this. Number one, First, God reaches out to us through His life-giving Word. He spoke to us, according to verse 18, by the Word of His truth that brought us forth. God's words always create life. God's Word creates reality. Now, your words and my words do not create physical reality. That's obvious. But our words do create emotional, psychological reality, don't they? Our words do create a reality just like God's words create reality. So, in reflecting our Creator authentically, our words need to be the life-giving words that God's Word is as well, not the opposite that is so often the case. And James revisits this topic in chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, chapter 4, verses 11, 12. It's all dedicated to the power of our words. So James says, just as God's Word was life-giving and came out to us, our Word needs to reflect God's words. And secondly, the reality is, after His Word came to us, God came for us, not when we were perfect, not when we were complete, not when we were intact, but God pursued us. And when did He pursue us? When we were weak and we were needy, and we were lost, and we were alone. God's grace was given to us not when we were His children, but when we were orphaned by our sin and cut off from the true husband of our souls. That's just the reality. God didn't wait for any of us to clean up our act and to become good enough for Him. He says, look, you are are familyless." And in that culture, that was the worst curse. You have no heritage. You have no value or worth, and I'm coming after you. You are a widow. You've been cut off from your husband. You have no contribution to society, and I'm coming after you. James says, we who are his do the same thing. We go after the weak. We go after the needy. We go after the lost. And in their culture, no one was more needy or weak than the orphan and the widow. 
James revisits this concept in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. He talks about the poor, the one that societally has been rejected. He talks about ones that are oppressed. You go after them. So he says, be authentically like your Father, who in His life-giving Word, your words should give life. When He pursued you, when you were lost and needy, you pursue those who are lost and needy and weak. Be like your Father. Show authentic marks of being part of His creation. And then third and finally, in this work of God, He is pursuing us and calling us to be like Him, to reflect Him, especially His, and notably holy totally unique, separate from the world around us. And I know we hear that word holy, and it it has so many negative connotations, but all it means is to be set apart, that you are set apart from the world to be His special children. And James talks about this in chapter 4, verses um, 4 through 10. In short, these two concluding verses is about being authentic actually reflecting and showing the marks of our Creator that justifies the price that was paid for us. That's what I love about the book of James. The book of James gives 10,000 ways the gospel is to show in our lives. There is not a single command in all five chapters that does not trace its root back to the gospel story. These two verses that seem so random and so out of place end up being the very thing that makes us understand the essence of the heart of God and His requirements of His people. Give life. Pursue those who are weak and needy. Be set apart from the world. That's what James Mima says. This, this is true spirituality. This is it right here. Now, before we jump into chapter 2 next week, we need to ask ourselves, how are we doing in these ways? Are we just hearing as if godliness comes by mere exposure, are we engaging? Are we for substituting quantity, or excuse me, quality for quantity, and just passively receiving, but not actively pursuing? Do we view our freedom as submitting to Him, or our freedom as breaking away from Him? Are we showing the marks of what it is to be His authentic creation? If you are a Christian, you should. If you're not, you can. It's an easy process. It it begins recognizing our need and understanding you being truly you means being reconciled to God and what He wants you to be, and that is forgiven and in a relationship with Him because of the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be authentically human. That's what it means to be restored to the image of humanity found in the life of Christ. That's what it means to be authentic. It doesn't mean loft living or ecotourism or slow food movements or all these other crazy things. It means being conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, where both humanity and deity come perfectly in harmony, paving the way for the rest of us so that humans and God can be together again. That's what it is to be authentic, and that's found in Christ. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.